Ladies, gentlemen, friends beyond the binary, welcome to an incredible episode of Not Safe for Wonks. We always try to do big things. Brandon Buchanan is here. Kennedy Cooper is also here. What's up? Hey, um, Leia Rose is uh, a little out under the weather, getting ready to do a different Super Tuesday stream. Uh, we are recording this on Super Tuesday, and we're all kind of flittering around between our multiple forms of content creation. Um, but luckily, we have a guest that we've been actually trying to get on the show for like a very long time. Um, just one of the coolest people that we've run into on Twitter. Um, just consistently good takes. A take artist, uh, State of Virginia, Bernie Victory Captain, uh, pre-K teacher, DSA member, just a lot of things. Uh, Karishma Mehta, uh, how are you doing? Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me here. I am doing really well, feeling uh, excited about Super Tuesday and, um, you know, just uh, ready to ready to make some change. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what motivated you to, to get here. I mean, here in life. Oh, gosh, I, I could uh, <laughs> not sure where to start with that. Um, I was born in the United States. My parents immigrated from India uh, in the 80s and um, settled in New Jersey. I was born uh, right up the street from Union City in North Bergen. Um, did a preschool there and then um, lived out most of my elementary school years down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it was a very unique experience growing up in the South in the 90s as a daughter of immigrants. Um, I since then have lived in Pittsburgh um, and moved down here for uh, my undergraduate studies at George Washington uh, University, where I studied psychology. Um, and I've kind of been in this area ever since. I laid down my roots here and, um, you know, see a lot of uh, potential uh, to uplift our community here. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I am. I'm in Arlington, Virginia now and uh, laying down the roots in, in, in Virginia as well. So you're in Virginia on Super Tuesday. You cast your vote this morning. You've literally been out there doing the work. How, how are you feeling about it right now? You know, <laughs> I, uh, I consider myself a uh, social introvert, um, basically introverted, unless you're uh, playing to talk to me about Bernie Sanders. Um, and so I got <laughs> kind of uh, I, I got kind of pulled into this uh, victory captain role um, just because of my interest and because of my um, you know, uh, values alignment with Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, going back to 2015, I, I mean, growing up, I never felt represented. I never felt seen. Um, I knew my parents didn't feel that way. You know, coming to the United States and, and um, attempting to pursue the American dream. I don't, I think that's what their hopes were, but I don't really think they ever got there. And, you know, for the first time in 2015, I, I, I remember this very clearly. I, I was um, suffering from severe depression um, as a young college student, um, not really knowing what to do with my life, getting paid um, starvation wages at a, a pet daycare um, and having to take antidepressant medications because I couldn't afford therapy, which is what I really needed. Um, and, and my brother had texted me and asked me if I knew about a man named Bernie Sanders. Of course, I mean, at that point, I didn't. And uh, one YouTube search uh, just, it sounds really corny, but that YouTube search really changed my life. I don't think I watched anything on YouTube, but 
old Bernie Sanders videos from like the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, it was remarkable to see that kind of integrity. Um, and so, you know, my my time in this campaign really just as a volunteer goes back to the last election um, and knowing the kind of movement that we've been building. This is not just, you know, something that popped up in 2019 uh, when he announced his second um, you know, run for the presidency. This has been something that millions of people have put in blood, sweat, and tears for. They've been fighting in their communities. They've been aligning with other people and organizing um, to really make sure that the things that are going to uplift working class families in our country um, are centered uh, and spoken about um, and no longer ignored. So, I mean, I'm feeling amazing. Um, we have put in the work in Virginia. Virginia is not an easy state uh, to be a Bernie Crat in, but the amount of people that we have encouraged and uh, spoken to and uh, gotten to join this beautiful coalition, um, it's it's been uh, one of the most humbling and and powerful experiences of my life. So, Super Tuesday. I'm looking. Uh, it's looking pretty good here. I think. By the time this episode comes out, the the it'll all be over. Super Tuesday. We'll have all moved on. We'll be freaking out about something new. Um, <laughs> so instead of talking about voters tonight, I would like us to have like an in depth conversation about people who get ignored during the voting process, and that's children. Um, kids are mm. kids are kind of left at the mercy of a lot of factors. Their parents, where they live, who advocates for them, and who has the energy and the strength and resources to advocate for them uh, is kind of, it runs along racial lines, it runs along class lines, it runs along the lines of a lot of our conflict in society. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences as an educator and maybe what was the first time that that inequality really struck you as uh, a serious problem? in your professional capacity? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you're right. I think uh, a lot of our uh, focus uh, when it comes to politics tends to be on the people that we see making the laws and, and, and in be being in charge of the policies that affect our lives. But um, in reality, I think that we overlook the fact that the people are the ones that elect our officials. It's the people that um, speak up when they cast their ballot about who represents them. And I think there's a lot of different, um, you know, ec economic, but also political um, uh, decisions that uh, disenfranchise people, especially children. Um, when it comes to my own experience, I mean, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it, I, I was one of, my family was one of maybe two immigrant families um, in our small little area in Chattanooga. It wasn't um, it wasn't a time where where immigrants were very welcome. Uh, you know, there was a lot of religious intolerance, um, and that impacted my uh, experience as a student and as a child um, in the public school system. I think that I navigated it as best I could, but I never saw myself in textbooks. I you know 
looking back, I'm, there was not a lot of uh, cultural responsiveness um, in uh, my teacher's approach to uh, educating children. And I mean, I don't think that they really um, had the opportunity uh, teaching in a school that had maybe one or two uh, students of color. So, you know, I think my experiences with, um, you know, these fundamental school policies, um, it stems from a very young age, but it also it also really has impacted how I see the public school system in a professional capacity. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of issues with uh, school funding. Um, when we talk about uh, when we talk about school policy, we forget a lot of the time that education policy is housing policy. And, you know, if you live in the wrong zip code, you don't get the education you deserve. Um, Housing segregation is not a thing of the past. And, you know, we're not some enlightened society that's moved past this class issue, this racial economic issue. Um, It persists very aggressively against uh, black and brown students. Um, And, you know, like, I don't think the federal government played games back in the 40s when they intentionally created um, you know, de facto segregation. Um, and I think mm-hmm. those policies continue to exacerbate how we how we interact with the public school system, how our children are funneled through it, um, and how teachers are expected to uh, sort of prop it up. So, um, you know, I think if we're if we're talking about um, the impact of policies in the school system and civic engagement years later, I mean, I think all of those things go hand in hand. There are a lot of ways that we could potentially criticize the average person's ability to sort of hold their elected uh, officials accountable or things like that. But there's no question that as an adult, you have more ability to affect the political process than a child who's in school who really has no control over decisions that are being made that do affect their lives. And outside of maybe like a cute photo op of some fourth grade class walking down to the governor's office or something, there's no real (laughs) meaningful interaction between like children and the political process. Do you think that there are some ways that that could be improved readily? Um, you know, I, I think we've already seen, um, you know, the impact that uh, engagement from young people can have on our politics. I mean, maybe not as young as four and five years old, but um, definitely as they get older and, and they see their parents become involved in fighting for people uh, in their community in, in recognizing the importance of Um, their own voice and what matters to them as a not only as an individual but as a person uh, within their generation so um, you know movements like the sunrise movement or earth guardians um, you know like young indigenous people Mm -hmm. rising up um, the new hampshire uh, youth movement um, that has really inspired me um, in seeing uh, how involved they are and how um how directly they uh, make themselves seen um, intentionally and and uh, without any apologies. So as far as you know, creating space, I think that those are already uh, opportunities that are happening. Um, and as more and more young people recognize their power, recognize um, you know their uh, the importance of their of their voice in politics. Uh, I think the, the trickle down effect of that, even to our like younger students 
um, will be interesting to see. Um, one of the things is that like children who are like uh, under under age shouldn't have to advocate for themselves. Like we're in a culture <laughs> where things are so atomized that at every level we have to be our own drivers. We have to be our own hoteliers. We have to do our own shot. Like we have to be our own farmers. We have to do so much stuff for ourselves now. Um, our kids should not be thrown like at a young age into the marketplace of, of ideas and choices. Like our parents are supposed to be the ones that do that. And unfortunately, like one of the things that we've talked about on this show is our educational decisions are not based on really trying to improve education across a district or across the city. Um, I think that our voting choices are kind of, a lot of voters think of education as competitive. And if someone else's child gets a better education, that could potentially mean more competition for their own child in like 15 or 20 years. So mm -hmm. I think that there's like intentional voting to like underfund schools or to almost punish kids for being wrong, uh, born in the wrong neighborhood. Um, how much yeah. do you do with that? And to what degree is our education policy collectively crafted by like wanting to beat other people's children to protect our own? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm glad you bring that up because frankly, I'm I'm really tired, um, especially as a teacher, um, you know, someone who um, advocates for uh, anti-racism, not just the absence of racism, but a true active framework of an anti-racist policy in education. I'm really tired of hearing people use phrases like the achievement gap. It's not an achievement gap. It's an opportunity gap. And, you know, come back to me after school center black and brown children and then tell me that there's an achievement issue because, you know, I think that there's this really messed up system that tells people you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever the hell and work hard and you'll succeed. But for black and brown children, that's just simply not a reality. You have kids navigating a Eurocentric system and we expect them to perform equal to their white peers. And you, we expect them to do that while simultaneously erasing them from history books, erasing their ancestors and their stories from lesson plans and novels and basically everything in that school system. We have a majority of teachers who are white women and nothing against my white allies, but we, when study after study shows you that teachers of color are vital to black and brown students' academic success, I think we should pay attention there. And I mean, beyond that, like we we defund public schools that are fixtures in the community, throw a whole bunch of money at for-profit charters. Um, those come with problems of their own, inexperienced teachers. And those inexperienced teachers go where? In the most vulnerable, teaching the most vulnerable of our students that are susceptible to this systemic discrimination. It's all intentional. So, you know, this idea that my child should be the best and beat your child, I think that's really just a failure of a, of, of a system, failure of, for a lack of a better word, capitalism, telling your people that if you fail, it's entirely your, it's a, an indicator of how much work you've put in or how much intelligence you have. Well, you know, I beg to differ. I, maybe there's a racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic system that insists on standing on my neck. 
while I compete with those that the system was created for in the first place. So all that being said, we have a long ways to go, I think, um, before we see a truly culturally responsive and 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 trauma-informed uh, practice within our school systems. You touched briefly on the subject of an anti-racist framework. And I think a lot of people don't really know what that means to be actively uh, combating racism and promoting like a, a healthy view of the world that treats everybody well. Um, can you get into a little bit just the difference between I'm not racist versus I'm an anti-racist? Yeah, you know, I I really appreciate uh, Dr. Kendi, Dr. Ibram Kendi for his work um, in illuminating this idea um, that being not racist is simply not enough. And when you look at the history of segregation, um, and he touches on this in a lot of his work, is you have three schools of thought. You have segregationists, assimilationists, and abolitionists. And when we talk about the fact that, okay, maybe we've come far enough to say we don't support segregationists, we don't support the racists. When you talk about assimilationists, these are the people, these are the white moderates. These are the the people that even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of as the greatest threat to the Black community. These are the people that outwardly say the right things of, I don't support racist policies. I think that Black children matter. But they still profit and benefit off of the the systems that were created uh, for uh, for white people. And that is the essence of being an assimilationist. You want to say the right things, but you're not willing to put in the work to dismantle those same racist policies that are continuing. Maybe you didn't make those policies. Maybe you didn't, um, maybe you didn't have, um, a, you know, a history of doing that personally, but you're benefiting from it. And when you don't recognize that, you're benefiting from that system and other people are being torn apart by it, that makes you complicit. And that is what I think the essence of being a quote non-racist is or not racist. Um, when you say you're anti-racist, that that word of anti puts you in a an arena of active work, uh, uh, of, of a perpetual recognition that racism exists, that you are taking a stance actively against it and not just simply that you're not a racist. So that that comes back to the abolitionist uh, sector uh, of those three categories. When you're actively working, when you're saying you're anti-racist, you're putting yourself in the in the uh, mindset to not only work on yourself, but also work on the systems that continue to perpetuate in our society. Um, one of the things that we also like to talk about is uh, child trauma. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that we inflict extreme emotional and psychological issues on children uh, at a very young age. Uh, mm -hmm. we, you've talked about some of like the racial disparities uh, in education. And I think discipline is one of those uh, disparities. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video of the six-year-old girl like getting cuffed and dragged out of a room while she's like, I did. Yo, that that hit me hard. I don't know what images are hitting other people hard this weekend, but that stayed with me. Uh, I think that like kids and especially black kids are treated like adults at a very young age. I don't know whether like we intimidate these like fully grown teachers to that degree 
that they like mm. their blood rate just genuinely just freaks out and they spaz. I don't know. Um, is it a racial thing? Is it a psychological thing? Why do you think, cause you like work with children at a young age and I'm sure you've seen things that you didn't totally approve of. Why are some kids yeah. like disciplined more quickly, more harshly uh, than other kids? Where does that come from? Um, and what are the yeah. things you've done about it? You know, I want to take a step back and just recognize that little girl, Kaya Roll, six oh. years old. And no matter what the outcome was for that officer, that little girl is traumatized. And why aren't we talking about her trauma? We're talking about the fact that this officer was fired, that he should, it, they, you know, that we should press charges, that he should never be around children. Those things are all correct. But what we forget is that the trauma has already been inflicted. The pain, the suffering, that is something that six-year-old little girl was just going to school, trying to learn, is going to carry with her for the rest of her life. And when we talk about those things, I think that it all com it comes down to a lot of different things. And there's no real right answer um, for how to tackle this problem. But I do think it's a race issue. I think there's a lot of cultural insensitivity, rigidity, um, thought patterns that, you know, tell certain types of teachers that I'm better than the students that I teach. You know, I'm maybe, quote, here to save you from something in your environment that you're that you're just subjected to because of who you are. And I mean, instead of doing that, I, I don't think we have enough teachers looking at children, especially black children and saying, I believe in your highest potential. I have high expectations for you as your as your teacher, as your guardian. And I pledge to continue my own journey of self-awareness. If I'm not, if I don't look like you, if I don't have the same experiences as you and and vow to address any cognitive bias, any racial bias that I might be approaching my students with. And I mean, the, the example that you gave of Kaya is, is a very good example of that. She was zip tied by an officer for throwing a temper tantrum. You know, like, how do you charge a six year old with a batter with, uh, you know, battery charges when I don't even <laughs> like a six year old might not even understand what she's doing with her body you know i mean it's yes. i think it's just unfathomable i i think just to maybe pivot a little bit you know this is kind of going off uh in a different direction but you know it also really it it um concerns me that we have government officials in this administration in particular calling to arm teachers with weapons i think we Whoa. we don't talk about that enough but what has the school system come to when you when you say that the way to go about preventing violence preventing trauma is to arm teachers with weapons instead of arming them with the tools to dismantle these systemic oppressive um policies that might uh, you know, inform some of the issues happening. I mean, it's just another example of how government officials sell out uh, to profit off of our children's pain. And I mean, how how do we expect students to advocate for themselves in that when you have a, a $2.7 billion school safety industry? You know, we don't want to pass common sense gun control legislation, but we've got all kinds of interest when people uh, can make a quick buck off a, a bulletproof backpacks and, and active shooter drills in elementary schools. I mean, you know, it's just 
our priorities are, are, are destructive, I think, frankly. It's just horrifying, too, because there have already been incidents of teachers who have like concealed carry permits and stuff like that, leaving guns in bathrooms or in classrooms and places where they've been found by students. And this is when it's not supposed to be happening at all. So if, if, if we're saying that guns are supposed to be in schools, then what, what the hell do people think is going to happen? Like kids are going to end up with their hands on these guns. And this is just horrifying to think about the scenarios that people are willing to create by passing legislation like that. It's, I mean, like the most comical Pollyanna uh, response to these things that are happening is that these teachers and fully grown 300 police, 300 pound police officers are so existentially intimidated by these little black children that they have to, uh, it overrides their common sense and they uh, are forced to do extreme, disproportionate, brutal violence just as a natural defense mechanism for themselves. And that's being like comically generous to them because the actual implications of what they're doing are like so much more sinister. Um, the idea that that kind of uh, structure should also be given weaponry. Um, these people that seem to at best have so little control over themselves. We already see like this horrific um, disparity in non-lethal discipline. I think that giving teachers uh, uh, police, I mean, like police weapons, when our actual trained police officers can't seem to cope with violence well at all uh, in a fair right. way, uh, is is monstrous. Like the implications of that are extreme. Absolutely, it's it's terrifying. So uh, you actually deal with like pre K. You deal with very young children. So you get to see them in like their very raw form. So just from your own experience, by the time that the kids get to you, do you get a sense of deep trauma before they are with you? Like in your first month or two of being with these kids, do you think, wow, they've already gone through some things or are they more malleable than that? You know, as a as a early childhood advocate and preschool teacher, I, I I'm constantly trying to learn more because this, you know, we we've more and more research shows that like ages zero to five um, are the most malleable. They're also the most vital for development. They're also the most susceptible to trauma. And I think and like those things that uh, that happened during that time frame, it might not be something that you remember as an adult. But there are there's lots of evidence that shows a subconscious behavior pattern that develops from certain traumatic events as a young person. So I mean, when they get to me, it's it's, it's hard to tell where where they've been, where life has affected them already outside of my classroom. I mean, as a country, we keep people in poverty. And I say keep because it's very intentional. We criminalize poverty. We fuel things like the school to prison pipeline, school to deportation pipeline, which thankfully I've not had to deal with. But I do know educators that have uh, come in uh, close contact with that issue. And you know, we just we expect kids to come to school ready to learn their ABCs, but we 
everything outside of that uh, classroom reminds them uh, how disposable they are, how disposable their families are. And that's wrong. Um, you know, we should be, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be fight like funding endless wars when we can't even feed our kids. Um, we can't even provide them with free meals. I mean, the, the, the idea of school lunch debt just makes me really nauseous. Um, I mean, I, I'm more often. That's another thing we talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of the legislation uh, recently introduced by Congresswoman Omar and Senator Sanders um, for universal meals. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous that, you know, that we find all the money in the world. Um, you know, for uh, different industrial complexes, and we, we can't even feed the children of our public schools. So I, you know, it, it's definitely about uh, priorities. Um, and, and just the fact that, you know, our, our education just really isn't a priority. It's, it's the teachers aren't a priority, the children aren't a priority, this, the quality of education is not a priority. Um, and yet, when we graduate, we're expected uh, to have all of these skills. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think at your early childhood development level, um, what what's the positive vision look like? Like, how can government uh, improve that experience? And like you said, I guess it's kind of a developing science of protecting, protecting, excuse me, protecting these young minds from like trauma. Um, what are things that are, in your experience, can improve um, that situation? For those children are there policies that would help well them? you know i i think people always talk about like government interference and but you know public school systems are are part of our uh that at least they should be part of the values that make us uh, americans and i think that we can and we should uh, be pressuring our elected officials to improve that system i mean whether it's um, uh, funding schools properly instead of relying on property taxes to fund uh, public schools because that's an issue in and of itself. Um, prioritizing mental health counseling. I mean, Virginia just, I mean, this is r absolutely ridiculous, but uh, Virginia uh, just voted to uh, cut millions of dollars in public school funding for mental health counselors. I mean, you know, those are the kinds of things that are that should be no brainers. Um, but when you have uh, profit motives uh, controlling uh, the people we elect, um, you know, I think it ends up being a different story. So, you know, I, I, I think there's a, a good push uh, to um, re rethink our priorities as a nation and to make sure that we're valuing education, we're valuing our teachers, uh, giving them a living salary so that they're not working multiple jobs and that they can actually do the important work of, of teaching and, and um, you know, <laughs> essentially raising uh, the next generation. Uh, it's so interesting that you kind of put it like that. There is a growing awareness about these issues, but like it's generational. So by the time that you have one generation that you are trying to, um, fortify and build their self-regard and their self-esteem and their self-respect there's a generation that's above them that didn't have that kind of grounding um do you have frustrating interactions with parents that don't <laughs> seem to like be on the same mission that you are on because like they went through it so they think other kids have to go through it or they just have internalized ideas that aren't 
helpful to developing a child? It's really funny you mentioned that. I I, I feel like as I, you know, I've I've not just been a preschool teacher. I, I've worked in education in different capacities, and a lot of that is teaching parents. Um, we, we don't really consider that when we talk about um, teachers and and the work that they do. But a lot of my work is is educating parents and and giving them the tools that are required. Um, you know, to giving them the tools that are required um, to raise their child in a better way than they were raised. And I think that it's something that sometimes doesn't come across as, you know, nice or or a kind thing to say. But as a teacher, I, I'm here for the students. And when I talk to parents, I, I make it very clear, you know, I, I'm here to help you um, navigate the world of being a parent in a better way and, and offer your child more than what maybe you were able to get as um, a student as well. So, you do know, parents, a lot of... Yeah. Do parents resent that? Like, do they feel like you're... I mean, you're a very, like, authoritative person. Do parents, like, grate the wrong way against you when you, like... Maybe you don't use those exact uh, <laughs> words. Um, but when you kind of offer to collaborate with them, is that something that causes resentment? I don't think so. I, I've... I've um in general, had really amazing parent relationships, uh, mostly because I do value directness, I value honesty. Um, and I don't think there's room for, um, you know, subtleties and, and beating around the bush when it comes to development of their child. And so, you know, in having those conversations, I think the honesty is more appreciated than someone who just tells you that your kid is doing fine. 10 years later, you find out, you know, there have been a lot of underlying issues that were just not caught at the right time. So I think when I'm approaching parents about issues that are happening, I mean, parents have talked to me about very personal things that happen in their life that would help me inform my observations in the classroom. And so I think those conversations are so important. Um, the transparency is so important because children don't live in a vacuum. They don't just live at class in my classroom for eight hours and then go live at home for the next 10 hours. It's it's a back and forth. It's a, a two way street where um, if you're not meeting uh, with the mind, with the heart uh, and having those hard conversations, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of opportunity for for kids to slip through the crack. So, I mean, I, I don't really play around when it comes to mental health in children, um, you know, because I've had my own uh, journey with uh, battling mental health issues. And um I think I owe it to, uh, you know, the, the children that I interact with and that I teach to make sure that they're in a healing environment and not one that uh, perpetuates their trauma. Like, uh, if anybody was out, I mean, we haven't mentioned this, but you are like a literal black belt. Uh, are you like <laughs> second Dan, third Dan? Like, you're like a black belt plus, of my, <laughs> my recollection. <laughs> yes, I am. I am a second degree black belt. Um, I, in Taekwondo. Um, Ooh. I did, Ooh, Taekwondo uh, is the real shit spinning. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I did, uh, like sword fighting, like hate on gum dough. I don't know. You know, uh, but it's a Korean sword fighting martial art. Um, it seems, it sounds really cool as an adult being able to like slip that into icebreakers and conversations, <laughs> but you know, that, that sort of, uh, practice started with, uh, me wanting to heal myself and, and take care of myself as a young 
person um, who had to fight back against a lot of uh, physical and, um, you know, emotional discrimination um, at the hands of people who didn't accept people like me. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So quick question. Are you willing to fight someone you don't know? (laughs) Yes, I am quite literally willing to fight for somebody that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered where Brandon was going with this. I could tell he was up to something. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I, I love bringing that up because, you know, there there was somebody who who said uh, somebody hire her to defend Bernie Sanders. And I was like, oh, man. That's it's a perfect line. Uh, give I you am. some sunglasses. <laughs> we'll give you like a, a suit. Um, yeah, it'll be rad. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Karishma, you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, like mental health in the schools. It really seems like right now we are in some kind of mental health crisis that's not being adequately discussed, uh, not just in the schools, but kind of as a planet, first of all, but definitely as a nation. Um what do you think uh, is the best way forward towards, besides just like Medicare for all, but more specific to education, what is the best way forward for getting mental health uh, adequately addressed in schools and also making sure the mental health professionals themselves are being well taken care of in their jobs? Mm. Yeah, sorry. Can you repeat the first part of that question? Uh, basically just um, we're in a mental health crisis and how can we better support that specifically in the schools and specifically in the people working the mental health jobs? Yeah. Um, I studied psychology um, during my undergraduate studies uh, with the hopes that I'd be able to uh, actually become a mental health uh, counselor in schools. Um, Unfortunately, uh, because of how expensive uh, master's programs are, um, I haven't been able to pursue that um, arena. But one of the things that I don't see um, in uh, these programs that train uh, individuals to become counselors, to become social workers that then uh, filtrate through our school system is, um, you know, we're not, this is an experience that I had when I was seeking mental health care. Um, and in talking to certain therapists and you know one of there i i wish i remembered her name but there's this a uh, really amazing um uh counselor a uh, mental health counselor who does uh, anti-racism work um and she you know she said when you're looking for a therapist ask them how uh, ask them their thoughts on uh, issues like racism white nationalism uh, and and decolonizing the mental health arena and and space from being strictly eurocentric to uh, more trauma informed more uh, racial disparity informed therapy and if they can't give you a, a good answer you know it gives you an idea of what kind of therapy you'll be receiving and I think that that's not mm. only for adults but it's also for children I mean what kind what child is going to uh, know enough about that to be able to ask their mental health counselor in school you know are you trauma and are you uh, willing to recognize um, you know racism and uh, this white nationalist uh, ideology as uh, something that has contributed to my trauma, to my depression or anxiety. Um, you know, I don't think kids have those tools to be able to vocalize that. So I think it's super important when we're talking about mental health and 
examples when we're talking about racial disparities and 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 the stigma around mental health care uh, for Black children, for Brown children. Uh, we're we're making sure that the people uh, that are willing to take on that fight for our children uh, are um, are going into it knowing that it's not just about the individual. This child is already affected um, by systems outside of their control. Um, and if you can't do that for a child, then I'm not sure that um, you know, those counselors are going to be as effective um, in uh, creating a healing um, environment um, for them. I don't know if this is the person that you have in mind, but uh, Bettina L. Love talks about these issues and writes about them quite a lot. Um, yes, Dr. Love. Um, yeah. um, all we want to do is uh, survive, I think, is her um, book. Um, she she's an incredible, incredible human being. Um, but even, you know, even she talks about, uh, you know, the idea that um, brown children already come, uh, you know, with they're, they're they're complete on their own. You know, it's the system that really breaks uh, breaks up their um their mental health uh, into pieces that we then have to approach with that, uh, you know, trauma informed counseling. So um, I do appreciate her work very much. <laughs> yeah, if, if maybe you could just talk a little bit about the mental health healthcare workers themselves before we wrap this up and just what kind of like systems they need to mm -hmm. have better because a lot of times they're sort of gated behind these doors and they can't even really do that much in the schools especially was my impression uh, growing but up. But doctor, I am a mental health worker. <laughs> <laughs> You cover, I mean, you know, you you said besides Medicare for all. And, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize how much of an impact that would have on everybody, um, you know, to pass a single payer program that covers things like mental health, where you can seek therapy when you need it without worrying about two, three hundred dollars, uh, like up front for an hour of, of talking about the issues you're dealing with. I mean, Mental health workers, regardless of what kind of training they have, they're doing important work, but they're also doing work that is going to psychologically impact them. Um, it's not, you know, we're human beings. We, we internalize no matter where we come from. When you are sharing an experience with another person, you internalize that. You, you, you're, the humanity in you recognizes the pain and the suffering that the other person is going through. And whether that's sympathy or empathy, because I know that those are very different, um, you know, that impact stays with you and then potentially impacts how you uh, go about uh, offering those mental health services to other people. So um, I absolutely think, you know, that Medicare for all uh, as a single payer program where you don't have to worry about um, paying out of pocket would uh, significantly um, lift the burden uh, of social workers that do the hard work of of um, reaching out to, to vulnerable children and, and also adults. But um, I think beyond that, it also comes down to what our priorities are as a government, as a society. Are we willing to uh, pay social workers and mental health care workers enough to be able to sustain themselves, to be able to 
live, um, you know, in dignity uh, and not on the verge or even uh, in poverty uh, as they do uh, the work that they're doing. So uh, there's a lot of economic a uh, lot of, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of economic um, impact um, that we should focus on when it comes down to uh, how we're taking care of mental health care workers. One of the really, one of the biggest inequities that I've seen in terms of mental health workers uh, and you in specific is that we have a lot more followers than you on Twitter. And this is just wrong. It's not right. It shouldn't exist. Uh, you have just consistently like a great, uh, internet presence. Can you tell people a little bit about how to follow you, see you, learn more from you, uh, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, you know, I, earlier in this conversation, I mentioned um, that I do have introverted tendencies. Um, I definitely love one-on-one -on -one conversations, conversations, um, you know, that um, help me learn more about the world and, and about my neighbors and my community. And so slowly I've started branching out and, and joining social media platforms like Twitter and uh, Instagram. Um, my handle is Karish for VA. Um, that's with the, the number four. Um, and I, I'm active on, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, fuck Facebook. I, <laughs> Let them know. I refuse, I refuse uh, to use Facebook um, as it exists currently. Nobody's um, on Facebook except for our senior citizen community who we love. <laughs> I've struggled with that, um, not being able to reach the senior, uh, well, you know, the, the more seasoned uh, people of our generation. Um, We're all voting for Bloomberg, unfortunately. You've got to get back on there to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I, I've heard the, the push. We all got off Facebook and they all said, well, it's Bloomberg time. Uh, exactly. Nobody yeah. can stop us now. It's almost like a moral imperative to get back and, and start that, talking to people. They're, they're, they're thinking of voting for Biden. We've got to talk them out of this. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're voting to cut your own Social Security. I really don't know why you would do oh, that. <laughs> um, okay, so um, you're also uh, thinking of running for office. Do you want to talk about that or are we going to keep that hush-hush for now? Um, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, reveal like where and who I'm running against, but I'd be mm. happy to just talk about, you know, a little Let's bit talk about, about calling public service. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, not to make it all about Bernie because I know that he would be disappointed. Um, the, the, the slogan of this movement, the, the, revolutionary statement is not me us and I, and I think that that you uh, discussing his success in organizing millions of different people millions of activists and organizers within their community and I think that um, you know seeing that there are so many people desperately wanting better for their for their families for their neighbors uh, for their friends uh, for people they don't know um, you know it has inspired me um, you know, in, in Arlington, Virginia to, uh, step up and, uh, run as a democratic socialist, uh, for, uh, for office. And I think that when people recognize that there are, uh, more of us, um, and that we, and uh, our values are strong, uh, and that there is opportunity to, um, you know, create a, a government in Virginia that works for, Virginians and not just uh, corporate uh, corporate donors, uh, corporations, or the elected officials that have sold out. 
um, you know, people are really going to um, uh, rally behind uh, the progressive movement in Virginia, which it, which is already happening. Um, Bernie Sanders can't do it by himself. He needs strong people running in Congress with the same values and people on the ground in their state doing the hard work of um, uplifting working class families. So uh, I'm excited uh, to be a part of that, uh, a very small part uh, of that movement, um, you know, and to to help uplift uh, families in uh, in Virginia. What else needs to be added? I think you've said it all. Uh, Karishma Mehta, this was just an incredible hour. We knew it would be an incredible hour uh, hanging out with you, spending some time. And uh, hopefully, I feel like we don't say, we, we say this often, you got to come back as soon as you can. Um, and yes. You're working on your own project, so we'll also be acting like that's ours. We'll be promoting it so much that you'll think that we just go off <laughs> you. Um, yeah, absolutely. Get in get in here. We'll keep doing it. it I goes- can't believe it's already been an hour. I mean, talking to you guys, uh, I mean, people must just ramble on because uh, it's pretty easy to talk to you guys. Yes. We don't cut. We don't. We're not like a, a Fox News. We're not like a cable show where we just like try to steer you into saying the thing that we want you to say, um, which makes this time go by a lot faster and people can connect with you in a more in-depth 